Welcome to the ProcureTech podcast, where we aim to excite and inspire you about how technology will shape our profession's future. I'm your host, James Meads, and I worked in corporate procurement for 16 years before starting my own business as a content creator and consultant in the procurement technology space. I'm deeply convinced that procurement must become less technocratic and embrace the entrepreneurial spirit and creativity if we're ever going to shake off our image of being a process-obsessed, box-ticking function. You definitely won't find vanilla content on here, and we're not afraid to tackle some controversial topics and tell it like it really is. So if that's your thing, now let's jump right into this week's episode. Yes, hello, and welcome to another episode of the ProcureTech Podcast. We are the official podcast of procurementsoftware.site. If you've not come across procurementsoftware.site before, we are the one-stop shop to go and search, filter, and find all of the different procurement technology solutions all in one website, completely free to use. You can filter and drill down on all of the solutions that you want to search for in less time than it takes to boil an egg. No complex corporate jargon or confusing solution maps charts. We've got everything that you need to easily find what you're looking for. So today I'm joined again by a, rec- by a guest who's been on the show before, who is a fountain of knowledge in the procurement tech space, both as the COO of his own procurement tech company, and as an industry veteran who worked 30 years in procurement. That is in, it, in and of itself a pretty rare mix. And we're going to be diving in today to look at some of the different considerations you should take when sourcing procurement technology and what sort of questions you should be asking of your technology providers. And for those of you who are pretty sharp, I actually did an episode on this in uh, back on series two, which was really just a quick overview. So we're going to be drilling down into some of the specifics here and diving into a bit more detail uh, with my guest today to get his insights and thoughts on how that space has developed and also some of the more specific things that you need to look out for from his experience on the other side of the fence as well. So I'd like to welcome back to the show, Mr. Ward Carson, COO of Raindrop. Ward, welcome. Good afternoon. Good morning, depending on where you are. Thank you so much, James. It's always great to see you. I appreciate you uh, having me on the show. And I appreciate you always getting up really early to do these because you're in San Francisco, (laughs) aren't you? So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> having to work on European time in the state in the west coast of America is uh, is a big ask. So we're uh, we're grateful to have you. So just give a very quick thirty second overview of how you landed in this space, Ward, for maybe anyone that didn't catch the previous episode that we did together, and then we'll dive straight in. Well, that story actually goes back thirty years when I actually fell into procurement, much like probably most people in this industry was an accident. Like all of us. <laughs> <laughs> My very first role was, hey, let's get into this uh, total cost of ownership process. And that was um, for uh, the, the Dial, uh, Dial Co- uh, Corporation, Dial Soap, of course, you know them, and since then acquired by a European company. But that really got me started into procurement. And what you, after 30 years, you tend to pick up things along the way. You start to realize that there are some issues in this uh, entire industry. And as a practitioner, you say, gee, I wonder if I could have a go at this and do a little bit better than perhaps the status quo out there. There's really the people processes and tools of this world. And of course, we could bring people, we could bring, you know, processes in our, in our personal lives to the table in our industry. And then you really have to determine, do I want to have a go at the, the tools, uh, which I like to refer to as, you know, the third leg of the stool 
if the industry itself has a little bit of, uh, let's call it staid environment. And sure enough, we said, look, let's, let's go. If anyone knows about how to do this, shouldn't it actually be people who really do this for a living, like as in practitioners who have done procurement, who do RFPs, who source uh, new suppliers, who uh, manage risk on behalf of our internal stakeholders. And then we said, look, uh, there's got to be a better way. We were frustrated ourselves with what was out there. This was probably about four or five years ago. We said, let's go fire up a new company, which we did. And hence the advent of our company named Raindrop, which is a uh, full suite uh, enterprise spend management P2P solution, which we're super pleased uh, to be able to tell you about a little bit uh, in general, but also talk more about the industry today. So I'm going to break this down into three different sort of sub subcategories or steps here. So let's cover off the basics first, if we're considering what criteria do you need to take into consideration when you're looking to source or buy a procurement software solution. Then we'll talk a little bit in the second part about some of the due diligence that you need to do on the company, its founders, some of the research that's out there on, on, on the different solutions. And then finally, because Raindrop is also, you know, in relative terms, one of the younger companies, it would be good also to look at it, you know, from your side of the fence, what, what should buyers be asking solution providers that are perhaps not one of the established brands in terms of maybe offsetting some of the concerns around perceived risk of going with a, uh, with, with a startup or a, or a rapidly growing company rather than an established brand. So if that's okay to drill, to, to sort of split that into three, if we start with the basics, I mean, price is obviously going to be the one on, t- on, on the top of every, on the tip of everyone's tongue. Let's drill down a little bit more into that. What typically comes into consideration when considering the cost of a procurement technology solution? It's, it's not like going out and buying a box of screws, right? I mean, there are different things that make up the total cost of, of what a piece of software uh, ultimately costs over the over the contracted period. So how are pricing models usually put together when you're buying software as a service like this? Okay, I'm going to first step back and answer one thing, is price probably is not number one. And if it is, believe me, you'll find something that will meet your price and may have absolutely no ability to solve your need. Uh, but at least you will have hit your dollar amount, how much you're looking to spend or whatever <laughs> currency. <laughs> I did have somebody uh, it was up in uh, our northerly neighbors here on North American continent in Canada. He said, you know what, this uh, full suite entire thing should go for X number of Canadian dollars which was a small five-figure number. And we looked at that and said, you know what, you should probably go find that supplier and go spend that with them. It was a little bit tongue-in-cheek to suggest that if you're looking for a number, you'll find your number. It may not necessarily do what you want it to, though. The real story here is that uh, does it have capability? Are these uh, an organization that have the ability to deliver a technical solution to meet your needs? And if it really is something that should be quick to use or a, a reasonable price or quick to deploy or have a high uh, customer success support level or the ability to say, look, here is it following one or two or five or 10 things that I need you to in order to configure my instance to make it usable for me or I need these couple feature requests. You know, if you look at some of the more established providers out there, if you ask them to make a feature request specifically for you, do me a favor, uh, get back to me in two years and let me know how that's still working for you. You'll still be in the queue. And I think when you have these more flexible, nimble, smaller companies that are hungry and able to go deliver to your needs, that's what's really important. So you'll find your number eventually. If you want to spend you know, uh, X number of euros per year, that's perfectly fine. You will spend X euros per year. 
the question. I, I we, we actually think about this. Does it solve your need? Is it user-friendly? Is it quick to deploy? Those are the tech. And is this company going to be around? That's another thing, right? So risk is a big thing. Uh, you know, you take a look at some of the uh, proverbial magic quadrant style type of uh, analyst output and, and and really those concepts of leaders are companies that have been around for 20, 25, 30, 35 years. And uh, I think a lot of the reason for that is um, it just defrays risk. So, you know, at the top of the pyramid, I fought my whole career to get up to be a CPO. Do I want to start rocking the boat on someone that, well, maybe I'm not entirely sure. So that due diligence that you were talking about, vetting those supply, those new suppliers to ensure that A, they're going to be around, and B, then it suffices for my needs. And C, yes, it meets the financial components that I'm looking to secure. I think we'll drill into due diligence in a little while, but I just wanted to stay on the basics for now. So obviously pricing, it's probably not going to be your driving factor, but everyone ultimately is going to have a budget that they've been allotted or that their CFO is physically physically able to to, to offer to them based on the financial health and the investment plans of, of the company. Let's talk a little bit then about how that cost can creep up. And you touched on a couple of things in your answer that I just want to dig into a little bit more. And that is an you know, estimated time and complexity of the implementation, which can then sort of morph into, into consultancy fees, but also the typical payback or ROI that you'd expect because... Yes, while cost might not be the overarching deciding factor, if you're going to pay a little bit more for something, then I, I suspect most you know commercially literate companies that are going out and sourcing this software will say will will then view that and say, okay, if it costs double, then will we see an ROI in half the time? Yeah, I think the real uh, case is. I'll give you a real world example. We were engaged with a logistics company that we reached out to here, a global logistics company. They had actually said to us that uh, unfortunately that there won't be any opportunity to move forward with uh, our particular company. And we said, well, why is that? It's, well, you know, we bought a solution from a large industry leader uh, back in 2021. By the way, this is a recent communication. And they said, we're still deploying it. Wow. I think my comment was, <laughs> did you realize that's best? That engagement is probably costing them upwards of you know uh, ten to twenty million dollars just in professional services to deploy it uh, as globally over two years in a large large company by the way. And so when you look at that and you say that there's something wrong inherently with this industry if that's what's really happening out there, that shouldn't be the case. Like you don't have to launch Microsoft; it doesn't take you that long to configure Microsoft, and that runs your whole company. You can uh, rinse repeat to say the same thing with your CRM provider. So. The real solution for us is, wow, again, you'll, you'll find the money. There may be a lot, you know, you might end up spending more than you had thought. Uh, yes, it might be a quote unquote leader in the industry. But the question is, is are we looking at, hey, that payback, that ROI, especially in the model I just gave you, that one real world example, that ROI is going to be a very long time. And so I think understanding uh, the procurement tech providers that I might be looking at or putting on my RFI, RFP, RFQ uh, list if I'm as a, as a consumer of these, and I do have a certain amount that my CFO has allotted me, am I making a, a full view of the industry to understand I can defray my risk, I can get it out there quickly, I can build a nice ROI? And am I really open to hearing the story about all these different providers and how they might be able to help me? And that's an important distinction, isn't it, as well, between CapEx that goes into the original purchase of the product or the solution versus what you were talking about, professional services support in the form of consultancy or IT support that goes on to then typically goes into the project creep if 
an implementation takes longer than expected or there are there are certain complexities around integrating it with your existing tech and software stack. And while one often only considers the CapEx side, you have to consider the total cost that you're going to have to invest into, into the life cycle of implementing and maintaining this, this product. And that I think would also then apply to, to training as well. If uh, if you've got a product that is so complex that you need to invest in extra training and and having super users or even perhaps a, a team within a team that operates and works as subject matter experts within this software, that it's a hidden cost, right? We were talking to one company. They had four people actually on that call that had one of the competitor, one of our competitors, an industry leader. The brand name actually in their title that they were in the business of effectively, if you had a car, that keeping that car on the road and as a mechanic, uh, being a full-time on-staff uh, mechanic. And we looked at that and thought, that, that really shouldn't be the state of our industry in general. Now, never mind my company. I'm just talking about any company shouldn't really have to require someone that much hand-level support. And you're thinking about that's true OPEX spend. That's not fake money. That's real cash that we're talking about burning on an annual basis. For people, you have to think about they're probably going to be spending somewhere upwards of three quarters or a million dollars, maybe a little bit more, just to keep that software running. And uh, that seems to me, uh, that shouldn't be how we run our business in general uh, out there. And I'm not talking about my company, I'm talking about industry. Uh, It should be quick. It should be an organization that understands my space. It should be, again, easy to use. So yeah, those are some key features. How do you validate user experience or ease of use or or lack of complexity, whatever you want to call it? How, how would you go out go about you know, do, doing your homework on that? You know, I always thought that it... So years ago, this talks about my procurement experience. Yes, uh, uh, I used to work at Electronic Arts and I did a, a large degree of their procurement uh, over there. This is many years ago. I had a sales rep once come in and he was touting about how great his software UI was. And then I stopped and I said, please look around the company you're currently visiting. All we do is make UI, right? So, you know, I have kids, everyone, you know, if you have kids, you, you know this, that if you've set them down in front of an iPad or a laptop or whatever the case may be, could they access and start using that video game without instruction? Did they need an instruction manual on how to engage with this software experience that we call a video game? And in the real world is I always thought, if you need a real user manual to tell me how to use my software, you probably didn't make good software. Right? It's not on the user. So I think that it's incumbent upon our industry to, I don't want to say the gamification, right? Because it's an probably uh, overused cliched term. But the reality is, is if I have to figure out how, okay, I need this T code and then you have to click here and then you have to go through this filter, right? It should be fairly self-evident. And if it's not, maybe it's not the user's issue. It might actually be your software might be a little outdated. So I, how do you go through that? The same way you probably would go through anything. Right, you got to start going. Take a look at it. Roll the sleeves up. Get into the industry. Go do your due diligence. If they have any type of uh, evidence online, or if you want to do a customer demo, things of that nature, to learn more about it. And I think once we actually see a shift out there in this industry, where people say, you know, these are easier to use. There might be a better way that we get away from that mind think in general of you know, there's a no one ever gets fired for recommending IBM is the old saying. And I think that uh, there's a new wave of procurement leaders, uh, and to some degree, I would say, actually myself uh, included, which was, there has to be a better way than it was already out there. And let's find out who's out there. And if there isn't, then let's go do it ourselves in our case. But yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of good, modern, easy-to-use solutions that um, could help add value to everyone's organization. 
The obvious question that I have to ask you on this is, and I, I am totally with you that UX and ease of implementation and um, and quick payback is is going to be key. But to what extent would you have to sacrifice features to get all of those? You know, can can you have your cake and eat it, or or is one of the hallmarks of some of these best of breed solutions the fact that they're easy to use? You can implement them in a few days, but they only do one thing typically. Whereas Raindrop obviously is a suite that's competing with a lot of the established players and a lot of the the brand names that have historically sponsored a lot of conferences and had huge marketing budgets. So, you know, can, how do you compete with them then on features? Yeah, uh, about a year ago, a very sage philosopher once hopped on LinkedIn and he wrote, and his name was James Meads, actually. He said... <laughs> 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 yeah, actually, never been wrote, called sage said, before. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give credit where it's due. How about that? Uh, it said you, you actually wrote. You said deployment uh, speed to value and ease of use will trump features any day. Now, I thought that was actually brilliant what you wrote because the reality is is that you could have the infinite last number of features and you can feature a product to death, which largely may make it unusable to many people. Where I'm going to only consume, you know, maybe. 50% of all those features in, re- in real life. The question is, Is do I have the ability to knowledgeably use this, this software? Do I work my way around to solve most of my needs? And for those things, are there workarounds that I have to do because maybe the software doesn't have 100% of everything? Or could I ask for a few features to have developed for me? Or And, and by the way, do I get my quick payback while I'm actually able to do that? So there's a lot of questions that we would encourage any you know smart buyer to roll their sleeves up and understand what they're getting into, what their needs are. Does that particular solution have the ability to support it? Just raindrop ourselves, just if I'm selfishly speaking, I would say is tell me if there's anything that this doesn't perform for you. And if that's the case, let's talk about it internally and see if it's something we could build for them. Uh, so, you know, that that's it. But then I'm sure there's a lot of companies on procurementsoftware.site that will be able to be happy to do that for their respective potential customers' needs uh, that don't necessarily fit in the, uh, you know, "Quote unquote magic quadrant space." Yeah, I think that's that, that's a great answer because it's a philosophy, isn't it? Do you want to have a, a provider that's nimble and agile, and you know the risk of that is that they're still growing and learning, or do you want one that's that rigid that it's going to cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars to to integrate an extra feature or a bespoke add-on that that's not part of that standard software package rollout? There's not necessarily a right or wrong answer, but I mean, I think yeah. I'm, it's no surprise to say that I'm with you on that one that, you know, I know what I would do if I were the buyer. We always think about, like, I used to work at Oracle. And when I was there, I was running their enterprise IT procurement desk just for a couple of years there. It dawned on me when we were forced to use iProcurement, this is no great secret here. It wasn't, a, it, it wasn't something that we were in love with or enamored internally because we had to adapt our policies, our way we run. Remember, people, processes, and tools. We had to change our processes to that particular piece of software. And the reality is, is every company should have their process and the software should wrap around and adapt to it, not the other way around. So I always thought that if, and if we apply this to the ERP world, do I want to go ahead and have to wrap and change how I run my business based on the capability of the software? And if that's the case, maybe it should dawn on folks that that's inherently not a good thing. The software should be able to adapt to my needs. And I think that if you apply this to the procurement world, Maybe some of the older solutions actually do fall into that pitfall, which is, hey, you have to adapt how you run your business around my software. And I think that one of our slogans at Raindrop, and again, this is uh, selfishly speaking, is you do business your way. 
and and you need to have software that could allow you to still do your business your way. Uh, and I'm sure that the modern solutions do that uh, out there, and that that's a good thing. So you don't have to adapt how you run your business to the software. The software should adapt to how you run your business, and it's a philosophical approach, really. Yeah, and I, I actually interviewed someone. It's going back a couple of years now. He was the director of of Procure to Pay for a consumer electronics company based in Western Europe. One one of the big ones, you know, household name. And he actually told me that they had a group of people in their center of excellence team that were actually employed to do nothing else but to run tenders within one of these legacy brand platforms because the average user could not get to grips and, and up to speed with their technology on time to be able to, 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 to be productive in, in using that piece of software. So yeah, I mean, that, that just speaks to it. It's a real world example that, you know, from, uh, from, from my own interviews, I've, I've come across. And uh, yeah, it's astounding really, isn't it? How many other pieces of software the companies use where they actually, okay, maybe Salesforce is perhaps another example, but um, there, aren't, there aren't many of them. And, um, and yeah, given that procurement is having to do more with less and unlike sales, they don't get extra resources at the drop of the hat. Um, and with all of this extra regulation and requirements that are coming on board around you know, ERG and ESG and, and risk management that, that's, that's been dumped on, on procurement's desk to take, to take care of, then I think everyone has to have that front and center to think, you know, my software needs to work for me and not the other way around. That kind of brings me, you mentioned magic quadrants in your, in your, in your previous answer, and that sort of nicely brings me on onto the next point that I wanted to then move on to, which is all around doing extended due diligence. So how much use and how intuitive and how effective are these research reports and magic quadrants, waves, whatever the terminology is that a certain research house uses that you're looking at, how useful are they? And are they, you know, bearing in mind the typical client that they're going after, you know, being the largest of the largest enterprise companies, you know, how relevant are they to the wider market out there? I think that you, it's a great question because I think you see that regardless of the analyst firm, and there's a lot of good ones out there. Everyone knows the brand names. There's some that, you know, are not, are lesser known, but they all will come out with their version of some form of a chart or, or a wave or a quadrant or a, uh, you know, a, a escape, those type of things. And I think that if we understand the savvy buyer, needs to take a look at that to understand what should be included that solves my needs. It doesn't have to be considered a magic quadrant leader or a, or, or, or a market scape leader or, or a forced wave leader, right? It has to be, here's my respective needs. Now, this my CFO carved out this many dollars for me. Here's what I have available to play or here's the problem I'm trying to solve. So do I have to manage my suppliers and my onboarding and my risk management or do I have to go require a sourcing tool or do I require a contract life cycle management because I'm partnering with the you know, general counsel of my firm, etc. You'd have to ask those type of questions. So I have trouble with the orchestration layer doing spent intake and onboarding. So when we once we understand that, then you could go to these charts. And I, I think that you have to take them with a sense of, does it provide me some insight and guidance? Is it going to be the absolute truth and the nth degree that if I follow this thing, it's going to 100% tell me what I need to do and I'll be successful at my career at this company? No, probably not. And, and I think that most savvy buyers understand that. Now, I think the great fallacy of a lot of these are that when we define someone as a leader, what does it really mean? Uh, and I, I hope that uh, my procurement colleagues on the buying side of the desk look at that and say, 
look, here's the reality. I could either spend a ton, take a long time to deploy it and not have great uh, stakeholder adoption. But you know what? I'm pretty safe. I've been at this company fighting to get my job as the CPO for a long time. I'm not willing to risk that by bringing on something I'm not familiar with. So let me do my homework. Let me go look at these analyst firm reports. And then I can pare down my list and say, maybe I am willing to take a chance on company A, B, or C and not necessarily just have to stay within that you know, proverbial leadership quadrant. Uh, and, and again, I think there are some good solutions out there, to say the least, that are these modern uh, pieces of technology that allow you to have a voice inside of your supplier's uh, development room that are hopefully quick to deploy and, and, and have a nice good payback on time. Those, those are important features that if we take a look at those proverbial analyst uh, quadrants, they may not necessarily be everything. It should be some guidepost. Yes, I agree. Uh, maybe I should actually do my due diligence and understand uh, do I want to talk to any of the board members, any of the founders? Do I have access to them? Do I have access to the leadership of this uh, new uh, provider out there or, or maybe a younger provider out there? And does it fit into my ecosystem? The reality is, is how does it fit into me? Or maybe I have a broken ecosystem full of a bunch of point solutions. Could I wrap this new technology and create that as a center hub around how I can help run my business going forward? And I think there's a lot of philosophical approaches that you have to have as you put together your you know, a particular provider uh, RFP list. Yeah, I like to compare this a little bit like a little bit to online dating because there, there are certain aspects of any, and, and I'm not saying any of these re, these research houses are, are are inherently bad. You know, they do do a lot of good work and they're, they're, everything that's in the reports is fact-based. But if there are certain yes, no gated criteria as part of their research as to whether it meets their 50 to watch or, or, or magic quadrant or wave or, or whatever they want to call it, then there are always going to be inherently good solutions that, that don't meet certain yes, no gated answers. A little bit like if I go on Tinder and only want to date women with blonde hair, it's kind of the same concept, isn't it? So it does run the risk that if you're too dependent on it, you're always going to miss out on a solution that, that could you know, meet your requirements and, and deliver a great experience to your users, but it doesn't necessarily tick that one box that you need to get it onto onto your list of preferred solutions. So I think it's, yes, it's always going to be a consideration. And if you've got the budget to go out and buy one of these reports, you know, why not? It's always good additional information. But if you're basing your entire sourcing decision on it, you know, I would agree with you that it's perhaps a, a foolish way to go about it if you become too reliant on that. It's like AI, isn't it? It can help you come towards a decision, but it can't necessarily think for you. And, uh, and an analyst that's writing for one of these big research houses doesn't know what your specific problems or pain points are in your business. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although the world of chat GBT is getting us a little closer, but nonetheless. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that that is right. I think that if we if we use analyst firm research as uh, guideposts, it probably provides pretty good directional notion on how it might be able to support and help me. These analyst firms are around for a reason. Uh, you are a great example of that. You provide value to the potential customer, but uh, at the end of the day, the customer still has to be able to answer a simple question: What do I need, and can solve my needs, and do I have the money to be able to can go do that? So what, once they be able to answer, they can answer those things. I think it's really incumbent on understanding what my needs are. Do I understand and have a more transparency? At the end of the day, analyst firms in general should be trying to educate the consumer, regardless of whatever decision that consumer decided they want to go to is, did I help that person provide better insights into solving their problems? Talk to me a little bit about 
the leadership team and the founders and board members, if if someone's going out there to source procurement technology and they're they're open-minded to cast the net a little bit wider beyond some of the more mature established platforms, what should they be looking at in, in a leadership team, both in terms of experience, but also in terms of perhaps, you know, dependency on funding as well? I'm going to answer that question this way. There are some of those uh, procurement uh, software companies out there that you're going to have a sales rep. They might be, you know, uh, two to seven years out of college, out of university, and they're going to sit there with their uh, chart and they're going to say it's sitting down in front of Mr. and Mrs. CPO or Mr. and Mrs. CIO or Mr. and Mrs. CFO and say, look, my software says it could solve all your problems, let me tell you. If I am that CPO, CFO, CIO, I would ask a simple question. You've never sat in my chair. How do you know what I have as issues? Oh, well, my white sheet here tells me that I could solve all those problems because that's what I'm told to say. And I think that that legitimacy, uh, we call it at Raindrop, we call it the A word, authenticity. And I think if you take a look at these founders and board members, do they have procurement experience? In our space, that's important. In other words, are you building a solution that solves my needs? Not because you had someone tells you about it, but because you actually worked in that industry, you understand, you sat in my chair, you were a CPO, you've run procurement shop, you were a CIO, you've managed technology organizations. That I think it's really important that when we have that, let's say, uh, legacy inside our organization. And I'm not just talking about raindrop. That's selfish. Yes, we absolutely, we come from a procurement background. Yours truly for 30 years in procurement and still am as a practitioner and leader, right? So if I look at those companies and understand, do they understand the industry? Do they come with authenticity? And I'm talking about from the board levels, from the founders, from the team itself, from the, do the developers understand the issues? Or are they just building code because someone gives us something? And that's fine, ultimately, right? Not everyone can work in our industry. But I think when you look at that and say, this is someone who has a point of view that sat in my chair, understands my needs, and can help solve those issues. Then we get to those second level discussions. Does it meet my financial requirements? If I want to only spend $1, could I buy software that, you know, I could only spend that one proverbial dollar? Or could I deploy it quickly? Or do I have a big one-time CapEx hit where I have to bring on a third-party SI firm that's going to take, you know, one or two years or whatever, or six months to deploy my software, which, gee, that takes me out of line with my budget. Or could I actually talk to them and say, hey, I need these feature requests, one, two, or three. Uh, And you should understand why I need those feature requests. Maybe my company is slightly nuanced and the other organizations, you know, uh, don't have these particular needs, but I need it. Could I go get that feature inside the software? And I think if you have that sit down and, you know, come to Jesus conversation, pardon the expression, with somebody internally that says, you come from my chair, you've sat in my chair, you understand this need. I think that authenticity that I call, you know, that A word really comes through strongly if you understand that the person who created and founded that software or who's on that board really sees that perspective and understands and embraces the company's, the, the, the customer's needs. Uh, I think that is a, a material difference out there. Yeah, and you're always going to have, I guess, the gap between the person on the ground that's selling it versus versus someone on the board that's got that experience because the the CEO or the the COO or the uh, or the or the or the CRO is not going to be out there in the field selling it but I certainly would go along with you have to have someone with some procurement experience somewhere in your leadership team to be able to really resonate with your customer base and talk to them you know eye to eye on the same level you know, even if you've even if you've got someone really, really smart as a as a sales and marketing or software development background. It's it just isn't the same, is it? Even though they might get to a certain 
point of growing and scaling their business to be able to go out and fish and catch these, these especially big enterprise customers. CPOs are a, a pretty cynical bunch, aren't they, when you try and sell something to them? <laughs> I'll tell you something I really uh, uh, took away and was always impressed by. The, to this very day, the CEO, founder of Zoom, he will actually say to his sales reps, look, tell me if you need me on a call. I will get on any call you need anytime. You let me know. I'm happy to do that. And I think that founder-led, at least where, where, they, where they're not so far removed from that, you're talking about the sales guys, don't come with that experience. And that's fine. I understand that. But the question is, is do my founders have industry experience? In our particular case, procurement experience, because that's, that's what we're talking about here today, of course, and that's your space. But is that founder willing to, hey, could they co talk to any customer? Do they want to learn about that need? Right? There's, there's founders of some companies that that's just not going to happen. They may not come from that space. Maybe they're just engineers trying to find a problem to solve so they can sell software and make money. And that's fine. That's fine if that's the space you want to be in. But again, if I'm a savvy buyer, I want to know that someone's actually cut their teeth in my industry and understands my needs. We're seeing now, especially in some of the more best of breed or niche specific solutions, we're seeing a lot of solutions that are increasingly niching down and drilling down on one specific industry sector. To what extent do you think that's relevant when we're talking more broadly about, about enterprise suites? Do you think that it, that has relevance? Yeah, I, I tend to think of that as I bought a track-ready race car that uh, is specifically made for this track to do very well. And that's fine and dandy, but if you actually want to drive anywhere else, it's not going to work. And so at the end of the day, you have to be comfortable with solving your own need that you have. And if you happen to need a niche requirement, then that's great. I do think, with all apologies to procurement.software.site, is that uh, the pendulum swings you know, on a routine basis. It goes from full suite to best of breed. And I think it goes from full suite to best of breed because we age out of the... And people are frustrated with that full suite solutions that are out there. And you could look at them in the proverbial you know, leadership quadrant that we've been talking about earlier. And I think when we get that swing to the pendulum to the left side, it's going to say best of breed. And maybe it's just I work in healthcare and I specifically need this requirement. And there is a provider out there that can solve my need. Hey, that's great. But the pendulum swing is going to come back to full suite when you realize what? Well, I have to engage, I have to connect it to something else. It can't just be a standalone solution. It has to talk to other environments. And then I'm going to point solution myself to death with, you know, half a dozen or a dozen different things to solve my particular point solution needs. And it's a little bit, a little bit like a clock. If I want to tape together from 12 o'clock to one o'clock to the two o'clock to three o'clock functionality with a different tool. And then I have to go from, you know, three to five with a different tool. And I kind of pair this all together. You look at things like, risk leakage and spend leakage and compliance leakage and data leakage. And, you know, you, you take a look at, well, this maybe this doesn't all solve my needs. Let me swing back over to the full suite and do these full suites solve my needs. Maybe in my particular industry, maybe I'm in healthcare, maybe I'm in life science, maybe I'm in fintech, maybe I'm in retail. And uh, maybe it makes sense to, yeah, maybe not be so niche. Uh, there's nothing wrong with those niche suppliers. I think they're very good and they solve your need. That's, that's exactly what uh, they're there for. So how then do you then, from a customer success and from a technical implementation standpoint, as a, as a growing solution competing against some of these established industry players, if what you said is true and, they, and, and, and the buyer sees the advantage of going with a suite rather than going best of breed, and I'm not saying one's better than the other, how do you then tackle the argument that they'll always say, okay, well, 
how do your how do your customer success and technical implementation teams stack up? Because the established solutions will always have more reference case studies to be able to to, to pull you know the, the proverbial rabbit out of the hat when asked about a, a specific integration or a specific industry sector. Yeah, I think uh, that it's important that we understand if I have different point solutions. Let's say I have three or four different point solutions to go solve my sourcing requirements. I have to implement them to something else. And I just talked about that in my prior answer is that I have a one-time CapEx hit, or maybe you OpEx that if that's your, your financial policy. But I keep on having to have a implementation hit plus a run cost of the license on an annual basis. And hopefully I get some support in there. And if I do that through half a dozen different pieces of software to solve whatever my need is, all of a sudden I have a significantly higher run cost of my business. Now, if I do an implementation of a one-time solution, let's say a full suite, and yes, shameless plug, or you could do that with Raindrop because we're built modularly and you could say, hey, I just need to buy this module today and I could land it and I could go and expand into other needs over time. I don't keep on having these one-time huge hits. I don't have to continue and have this friction of having to integrate them into different things. I don't have to have the IT department be knowledgeable about six different pieces of software. It's just one. And I think when the savvy buyer out there looks at these things and says, okay, here's my respective needs, then uh, that helps them uh, consolidate. Got it. And then final question, Ward, just before we sign off, at what point do you feel that IT should be involved in this journey? And if we assume that procurement is going to be leading this, this project, at what point do you bring IT in, especially if we're looking at things like cybersecurity being the elephant in the room that that is increasingly coming to the forefront. When when would you bring IT into this process? So that's a great question. And that comes down to something fairly straightforward. The procurement organization may decide that this is the right solution for me. Uh, That may not necessarily fit in with IT's desires or uh, technology or ability to integrate or resources or risk profile. And I think that once we understand, hey, here's the risk profile, um, and I did my due diligence, I understand the technology, and and I think there's also that discussion that is my CPO talking to my CIO, talking to the CISO, uh, do I have support across the board or am I going out this to my, for myself? Uh, do I have internal support? If the answer is, hey, I'm just going to go do this, I'm going to go kick the tires. I think most buyers need to understand that there is nothing that's done in a vacuum anymore. And if you want to have point solutions, that's perfectly fine. But of course, they have to talk to something else. Maybe it's an ERP. Maybe it's another system altogether. Maybe it's security. And when I want to do multiple integrations into that, I may risk the potential of getting burnout with my CISO, which is, look, you know what, you're going to point solution me to death. Um, I think having those conversations up front are absolutely critical. Being able to do the level of cybersecurity risk and say, here, here's the engagement, here's the risk opportunity. I'm, I might need you on board for this. If I pick a solution, I need your support. Yes, do your due diligence, but... You have to really go uh, and get that conversation. I think that a CPO or the head of procurement or whatever role that is or head of procurement operations really has to have um, uh, securities on board and CIO on board up front before they really jump into the waters of saying, let me go find a solution. So what you're saying is, by all means, procurement can go out and do a wide and shallow you know, RFI analysis of what's out there. But when they're seriously going to go out and get budget and go and source something, it, they pretty much need to be involved from the outset. But I think nowadays it's pretty safe to say that nobody works in vacuums in organizations. And if you do, well, I don't know that's going to work very well for you as a strategy for your career. 
But uh, I think having those open dialogues with saying, look, I might go out there and, and maybe I don't even do an RFI. I might know exactly the solution I want to buy. And that's perfectly fine. Yes, I have funding, I have support, but I need you to do your vetting and due diligence, not to crush the opportunity, but to tell me what where the risk is. And maybe there's three or four or five things that you have to go solve for. That's perfectly fine. I'll work with my provider of choice. We'll try to address those directly to satisfy cybersecurity requirements inside my company. Once I do that, I really do need your support. I think that if we have those upfront and open and candid conversations that I do need a solution, I do need your support, Mr. and Mrs. CIO and CISO, that goes a long way. Um, Again, more communication, open dialogue, always the better, I think. And final, final, final questions. I know we need to wrap this up, but I'm really keen to get your thoughts on this as a solution provider, looking at it from the other fence other side of the fence. What do you see as the optimum length of contract, both from a buyer's side and from a solution provider's side? What's the happy medium? James, if you leased a car for 36 months, how long would you actually like to use that car for? Well, the answer better be as much of that 36 months as possible, right? Now, nobody <laughs> leases a car for 60 months and you probably wouldn't want to do that for your software either. You know, the reality is on the, I'll be on the buying side for a second, not the selling side. And I'll tell you, in my procurement world, uh, the real reason I wanted to have a longer term contract was because I did, I wanted to avoid those, hey, here's your uplift at the end of the contract term. It's 5% or 7% or a million percent, whatever that number is. Or better yet, I don't have a cap. And when I get into a renewal at the end of my three year contract term, I risk that there's going to be unlimited cap and I'm going to have repriced altogether. So I think if we try to vet that issue and say, look, by the way, the answer to your question is three year contract term is right. I remember my earlier conversation uh, in this uh, at the beginning of this discussion was uh, there's a logistics firm. They have a piece of one of the uh, leaders in our industry. Uh, they've been deploying for two years, two years, and they're still not fully out there even deployed at this point in time. And so, well, if you have a 36-month contract, you gained exactly 0% value so far. That's not a good solution. So I think a three-year contract term, but I need to ask a fundamental question. And me being the buyer at this point in time is, how quickly could you get this deployed? When could I gain access to value? And if the answer is, hey, I have a 36-month car lease and someone has to get the car ready for me for about you know maybe one or two months, I'm willing to deal with that. But I'm not willing to deal with 12 months. At the, you know, at the end of the 12th month, they hand me the keys and say, okay, your car's ready to drive now. And by the way, at the end of month number 25, the car sales rep is going to call me up and say, hey, would you like an upgrade in your lease with this new car? You're right. That shouldn't be the state of the soft procurement software industry. And hopefully uh, Raindrop, if selfishly speaking, is helping to change that notion one customer at a time. That's an incredibly detailed answer, but I love the comparison, actually. It is super relevant. So just before we sign off, if anyone would like to get hold of you, Ward, very, really, really quickly, what's the best place for people to reach out to you? Outstanding. Raindrop.com, spelled exactly like it sounds. Um, I always thought that uh, uh, in our industry, it sounds like if I have an itch somewhere, I'm going to go buy a cream for it to help that problem go away. Sounds like most of the names of the software companies in this industry. So I always thought, gee, make it easy, make it memorable. It's just raindrop.com, super easy. (laughs) And of course, I'm very easily reached out any single time. Anybody can reach me at ward at raindrop.com. 
and we'll link to all of those in the show notes. Ward, it's been an absolute pleasure. Always great catching up with you and having a few laughs. So thank you for being a great sport. And for anyone listening, thank you for choosing to listen to the Procuretech podcast with all of the plethora of other shows that are out there these days. We're very, very grateful that you've inserted us into your earballs on this fine day. Take care of yourselves wherever you are in the world and we'll catch you again next time. Bye for now.